Chapter 54 The Moon Al-Qamar In the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful. The hour draws near and the moon is split in two. This chapter, revealed in Mecca during the fourth year of the Prophet's mission, opens with a description of what will happen to the moon on the day of resurrection. This chapter takes its name from this celestial body, just as chapter 91, the sun, begins by describing the fate of the sun. One of the miracles commonly attributed to the Prophet is that he split the moon into two halves. And yet, the Quran seems to affirm that the only miracle sent to the Prophet was the Quran. Chapter 17, verse 59 After all, if this stupendous event had really occurred, why did no historian or astronomer record it? Of course, we should expect that those who believe in it can back up their claim. But doing so is not as easy as they imagine. For example, have they considered the devastating consequences that even a slight alteration to the moon-earth relationship would cause? From our point of view, the best way to understand the Quranic meaning of a specific word is to refer to other parts of the Quran. For instance, to draw near appears five times, whereas to split appears four times in the Quran. Using this approach, we notice that the Quran uses to draw near in connection with the resurrection. It is not saying that this event has taken place, but rather is warning us that the moon will soon be ready for this terrible transformation. To split refers to the breakdown of the cosmic order in the world around us, as manifested in the shifting of planets and other heavenly bodies from their regular orbits. The Quran twice speaks of the splitting of earth, four times of the splitting of the heavens, and once about the splitting of the moon, all of which presage the destruction of the current order of things. The Quran always uses hour, which literally means a time, in the sense of the time at which the resurrection is ready to occur, just as when the weight of a fully ripened apple causes it to fall to the ground. When the world crosses the threshold of its reckoning, the sun will darken and fade. The earth's surface will rupture. The mountains will crumble to dust and be scattered throughout the heavens. And the moon will leave its orbit and come crashing down. When all of these terrible things come to pass, what will people be thinking? Whenever they see a sign, they turn away and say, same old sorcery. In other words, as these signs neither awaken them nor cause them to believe, they simply turn away from them. Sometimes a person might be unaware of something, but they neither disregard it nor avert. They are simply uninformed. But sometimes people are heedless of something because they have intentionally turned away from it. Their hearts are so consumed with play and diversion that they do not care 
what kind of future is waiting for them. This is exactly what the verse is saying. They reject the truth and follow their own desires, yet everything will be settled. Everything in this world has its proper place as well as consequences attached to it. Although warning news that should have restrained them has come down to them. This warning means news that contains admonishment. Whatever knowledge is needed to prevent people from indulging in immoral behavior has been expounded in this book. This refers to anything that restrains people from engaging in wrongdoing, corruption, disbelief, obstinacy, idolatry, and tyranny. Extensive wisdom, but these warnings do not help. These sayings are neither unclear nor hard to understand. Rather, they are clear and easy to grasp. This shows that one of this chapter's primary themes and concerns is warning. In fact, cognates of this verb appear on twelve occasions in this chapter alone. But naturally, those who turn their back upon them and refuse to listen can derive no benefit from them. However, translating warning as scaring does not correlate with the Quranic sense of the word. The Quran contains many terms that we might translate as fear, but such a translation does not always faithfully convey the intended meaning of informing people that they are in imminent danger. I always use the example of an air raid siren to illustrate this. For this device does not seek to frighten people or terrify their children, but to alert them to an impending attack or natural disaster so that they can seek shelter for themselves and others. Fear is just one conceptual element of the idea of a warning. Prophets were sent to warn people that their current behavior is endangering their fate in the next world as well as to let them know that they could protect themselves by changing their ways. However, given that a warning can only benefit those who are ready to act upon it. So, O Muhammad, turn away from them. On the day the summoner will summon them to a horrific event. This verse clearly refers to the day of resurrection and the call that everyone will hear on that day, which the Quran sometimes calls the blowing of the trumpet, a kind of general summons. With downcast eyes, they will come out of their graves like swarming locusts. Their eyes will look at the ground, full of terror and awe. The people will feel ashamed and thus withdraw into themselves, or they will be so overwhelmed that they dare not look directly at what is unfolding before them. You might have seen locust swarms in nature documentaries. They can become so thick that they actually darken the sky. 
On that day, people do not know where to turn, and thus run chaotically in all directions like locusts. This is the image that the language of the present verse evokes. Racing ahead towards the summoner, the disbelievers will cry out, This is a difficult day. They will scramble toward the caller, and those who deny these truths will exclaim, This is a difficult day. This term is also used to describe those who, due to their fear, become wide-eyed. Of course, it is easy to understand the general sense of this word in such a context. The topic of these first eight verses has been a warning about the future, something that will happen to the physical laws now governing the cosmos, which humanity has been warned about throughout the ages. The next verses discuss how five earlier peoples sealed their own respective fates by denying the messengers sent to them. Here, the Quran speaks of the five ages of humanity that represent the major chapters of history that will play a definitive role in its fate. In terms of chronology, these are the age of Noah, the Ad, and the Prophet Hud, the Thamud, and Prophet Saleh, of Lut and his people, and of Prophet Shaib. It is interesting to note that from the Quran's point of view, people also have five stages of preoccupation and distraction, starting with play as a child, diversion, glamour, vainglory, and finally greed toward elderly ages. Human history also passes through these five phases. Noah's age is like humanity's childhood. He preached and called his people to God for 950 years, but they were occupied with play and thus ignored him. The people of Od were powerful, conceited, and vainglorious. At the time of Hud, humanity had grown somewhat, for his people were occupied with diversion and thus heedless of God's remembrance. During Lut's time, people were extremely attached to adornment and gratifying their aesthetic and sexual desires. During Shoaib's time, trade and commerce were abundant, and so people pursued wealth and greed, in other words, accumulation. Remember that this chapter's first eight verses discussed the prophet's warnings and their opponent's denials. Noah was both a servant of God and a rejecter of idols, but his people said he was crazy and so cast him out. Before them, Noah's people also denied his message. They rejected our servant, saying, he is a crazy man, and drove him out. So he called upon his Lord, saying, I am defeated, help me. Noah's story appears in greater detail in other chapters. 
He said, My Lord, I have summoned my people night and day, but my summons only increases their aversion. Indeed, whenever I have summoned them, so that you might forgive them, they would put their fingers into their ears and draw their cloaks over their heads. They were persistent and disdainful in arrogance. Here, Noah confesses his complete failure, admits that he has been overcome even though he has done all that he can do. Then he calls out, My Lord, do not leave on earth any of faithless. If you leave them, they will lead your servants astray and will beget only victorious ingrates. Thus, he had no hope left that they will ever change. Just like a neglected garden that has become full of weeds, it must be completely uprooted and replanted. So we open the gates of heaven with water pouring forth profusely and cause the land to gush forth with springs. The waters met and rose for a preordained purpose. Here, God uses we to refer to the systems he has instituted in the natural order. We must remember that nature responds to humanity's activities, for the Quran explicitly states that the punishments visited upon earlier nations were due to their own actions. After Noah's supplication, earth was flooded with days of torrential rain. Water poured forth from the sky and the ground, from above and below, and was present everywhere. This flood was so severe that there was no shelter from it. We carried him on a vessel built of planks and nails. A vessel made from joined pieces of wood carried Noah and those with him upon the waves that floated under our watchful eye, a reward for the one who had been rejected. Noah's vessel sailed upon the flood waters and roaring waves by God's command, and according to the route laid down for it in his knowledge, and according to his will. We have left this as a sign. Will anyone take heed? Will anyone be awakened by hearing or reading this story? One term that appears frequently in this chapter represents yet another one of its central concerns. Dhikr, remembrance. Its meaning is one who pays attention to a reminder. Therefore, will anyone pause to think about these events? Will this story rouse anyone from his or her stupor? How dreadful was my punishment after my warnings! Noah's warnings and exhortations were designed to make this punishment unnecessary. Indeed, we have made the Quran easy to understand and learn lessons from. So is there anyone who will heed its advice? 
God has deposited certain truths in our mind and engraved them on our hearts, and yet we become distracted by this world and neglect our moral duties. As we forget these truths, the mirror of our heart becomes dusty and causes us to lose the insight necessary to receive moral lessons from our experiences. And so, the Quran was revealed to restore our insight and clean the mirror of our heart. This is why he says, after relating the account of a previous nation's fate, we have made the Quran for admonishment and made it easy to understand. In other words, Quran is not a book of philosophy, theology, or science filled with technical terminology that only few educated ones can understand. The phrase, indeed, we have made the Quran easy to understand and learn lessons from, is repeated four times in this chapter. This can only be understood as God affirming that it is accessible to anyone who sincerely wants to understand it and awaken from their slumber. The people of Ad rejected warnings. Then, how dreadful was my punishment after my warnings. God attributes this punishment to himself because he is the one who introduced the natural order that gives rise to it. However, in fact, this punishment is nothing other than the result of a person's own actions, not an arbitrary act of divine retribution. Surely, we let loose on them a raging wind on a day of constant calamity. A storm like those we have seen in recent years, one that caused incalculable destruction and loss of life, even among the world's most developed nations and the best prepared for dealing with such disasters. The people of Ad, who denied the message of their prophet, Hud, were destroyed by the wind, by currents of air. Another element that we view as proverbially weak. Plucking people away as if they were trunks of uprooted palm trees. In other words, this wind left them like fallen trees that had been torn out of the ground and scattered. How dreadful was my punishment after my warnings. Indeed, we have made the Quran easy to understand and learn lessons from. Then, is there anyone who will heed the advice? In several of its chapters, the Quran informs us of the odd superior strength. They were the epitomes of physical power, and, for this reason, were probably supremely overconfident about their own strength and resilience. The Quran repeatedly mentions their destruction and describes how they were left prostrate like fallen trees. This historical event was revealed during the fourth year of the Prophet's mission, when Islam was still in its infancy and the Muslims were a small, persecuted minority in Mecca. 
Its purpose was to make them aware of these events, boost their morale, and remind them that all elements are at God's disposal and subject to His commands. The people of Thamud also rejected the warnings. The Thamud appeared to have lived somewhere to the north of the Hijaz. In fact, many verses mention them and their fate. They also ignored their prophet's warning about the danger they were in, and thus fell victim to the consequences of their evil deeds. They were wiped from the pages of history. They exclaimed, What? A man? Why should we follow one of our own? That would be misguided, quite insane. It appears that they were surprised that God would entrust one of their own people with such an important mission. Throughout history, people have tended to imagine that if God wanted to send them a message or a guide, he would send an angelic being that had visibly originated in a higher, supermaterial level of reality. Most ordinary people could not conceive of someone like themselves being appointed a divine messenger, especially if he had no wealth, influence, or power. They responded with these words derisively, in response to Prophet Saleh's warnings that they would go astray and enter hellfire. Would the message be given to him alone? Out of all of us? No, he is an insolent liar. Despite all of the people with riches, power, influence, and noble lineage among us, this lowly one was chosen to receive the divine revelation, and only he has been guided? Why no one else? In what way is he superior to any of us? In fact, the Quraysh said the same things about Prophet Muhammad, that this revelation should have been sent down to someone important. Why should a poor orphan be chosen over the tribe's leaders, who are so much more elevated than him? Tomorrow they will know who is the insolent liar. Today they accuse the Prophet, but soon either tomorrow in this world or tomorrow on the Day of Judgment, it will become clear who the liar is. We are sending a she-camel to test them. So watch them, O Saleh, and be patient. The Quran provides no precise description of this camel. Some commentators have claimed that it miraculously emerged from mountain. Tell them that the water is to be shared between them, and that each one should drink in turn. Access to water was divided among them, and they were charged with giving the camel free access to it on a certain day or days. In fact, it is very easy to compare this story to that of Adam and Eve, in the garden, when God said that they could eat from wherever they wished, except from one particular tree. 
What kind of tree? This makes no difference, for the story's central focus is whether people can exert self-control. While enjoying God's blessings, restrain themselves from just one thing that God has forbidden. What is at issue here is a test designed to see if people are so weak and enslaved to their desires that they can only accede to their stomach's every whim. In other words, these restrictions exist so that we may practice self-restraint and self-control, taqwa, without which no one can benefit from the divine guidance. But they called their companion who took and hamstrung the camel. They told an evil person to kill the camel. Not daring to carry out the deed themselves, they paid a person of ill repute to do it for them. Thus, they could assert their innocence by declaring their non-involvement. After it was dead, the people put their minds at ease. How dreadful was my punishment after my warnings! We sent upon them a single mighty blast, and they became trampled twigs of fence-builders. Indeed, we have made the Quran easy to understand and learn lessons from. Then, is there anyone who will heed the advice? The Quran speaks about this punishment on several occasions. It seems that the pressure of the gases trapped and compressed underground suddenly reached a point at which the surface split open and the gases escaped violently. This was accompanied by a cataclysmic explosion where volcanic lava was thrown high into the air before falling to earth. With regards to Thamud, the people of Prophet Saleh, a change took place that converts to the religion he brought and came to represent their message as a kind of social stratum. The tyrants, who perceived a danger in this message's spread within their society, set about weakening them. This refers to power of tyrannical governments faced by people for the first time in history and how they tried to overthrow them. Another significant point of this story is that although just one person killed Saleh's camel, the entire population suffered the consequences. God punished them because they silently consented to this crime. This is a very important point to consider. Citizens are responsible for the actions of others and of their government. No one can say that their government's actions have nothing to do with them, because a government that is confronted by an active citizenry cannot go against their wishes in the long term. The relationship between the state and its citizens is one of mutuality. Each one influences the other. The people of Lut rejected the warnings. We sent upon them a storm of stones, except for the family of Lut. We saved them before dawn. As a favor from us, thus 
we reward the one who gives thanks. Thus, Lut's people, like the Thamud, appear to have been destroyed by a volcanic eruption and buried beneath molten lava. In the story of the Ethiopian general Abraha's attack on Mecca, the Quran refers to something similar. It refers to the mass of volcanic rocks and lava thrown into the air and then rained down upon the land. It seems that Abraha and his army of elephants were destroyed by this same phenomenon. Although Lut's family were saved, however, his wife, who stood against him, perished with the rest of the people because she did not follow the divine path. He, Lut, had already warned them of our crushing blow but they disputed the warnings. They even solicited his guests for an ill purpose, whereupon we blotted their eyes and said, Taste now my punishment after my warnings. They did not care that he had already proven his case to them. In short, the angels who visited Lut's house appeared in the form of handsome young men. These corrupt people besieged his home and demanded that he send out his guests with them to force their desires upon them. The Quran does not explain blot out their eyes. It appears that this was the result of some power of the angels that blinded them and forced them to retreat. God only knows what actually happened. Early in the morning, a lasting punishment seized them. Now taste my punishment after my warnings. Indeed, we have made the Quran easy to understand and learn lessons from. Then, is there anyone who will heed the advice? At the beginning of the morning, they were destroyed by a volcanic eruption. God tells them, so receive my punishment that you were forewarned of. This event is mentioned in other places as well. God accuses Lut's people of engaging in corruptions and indecencies never seen before, meaning sexual practices that have nothing to do with reproduction. As the story develops, the Quran says that Lut was deeply concerned when the angels first arrived, because he realized that they had come from a different city and could not leave city safely, given its inhabitants' perverse nature. However, the guests told him not to worry or grieve, for they had come to save him and his family, but not his wife, whose story is well known. So, it was decreed that Lut's people would suffer the divine punishment the following morning. This verse makes it clear that not even the wives of God's prophets were spared. We must put aside the notion that one spouse automatically shares culpability for what the other one does or must be of the same moral character. And indeed, the people of Pharaoh also received warnings.
most important of all, it is the warnings that Moses brought that reach Pharaoh. For the Quran recounts these, as opposed to the miracles, one by one. And yet, but they rejected all our signs. So we seized them with all our might and power. Therefore, none of the miracles or measures God used to guide these people had any effect. Ultimately, the divine system saw to it that they suffered the consequences of their actions. The next verse addresses the Meccans. Are your disbelievers any better than these? Or have you been granted any immunity in the scripture? Are there any individuals among those who hide and deny the truth better than anyone else? Do you think that you are any different from them, that you are the exception to the rule? Do you really think that you will be saved from the consequences of your deeds instead of being held accountable for each and every action? There is no doubt that a single law governs the cosmos and that the same rule applies to you today as it did to the faithless of yesterday. Or do they say, we are a great army and shall be victorious. They thought that no one would dare challenge them, let alone be able to defeat them. But because their hearts were disunited, their confederacy soon fractured and come to naught. Soon their forces will be rooted, and they will turn their backs and flee. The prediction mentioned in this verse, revealed in the fourth year of the Prophet's mission, would only come to pass some nine years later at Badr. This battle and the later ones finally broke the military might of the faithless Meccans. But the hour is their appointed time for due punishment, and the hour is more disastrous and more bitter. But this is not only their fate in this life, for even in the hereafter they will reap the fruits of their evil. Thus, at least for them, the resurrection will be an even worse tribulation and catastrophe, an even more painful and bitter outcome than the fate awaiting them here. Indeed, the wicked are in misguidance and are bound for the blaze. This chapter's 24th verse quotes the deniers as saying that following Saleh would lead them astray and ablaze. This phrase is turned against them here, saying that the wrongdoers who fail to follow the truth are astray and ablaze. On the day they will be dragged in the fire on their faces and it will be said to them, Feel the touch of hell. Note that this is a symbolic expression, for here, face is being used in a metaphorical sense. In the Quran, this word has several meanings and is frequently used figuratively to refer to people's behavior 
in the sense of their direction in life or way of living. Therefore, they have earned the punishment of hell because they denied the truth and were absorbed in their lusts and desires. Indeed, we have created all things in due measure. The cosmos is governed by a precise system of rules and laws, one that includes recompensing each deed with a corresponding, fully justified outcome. Wrongdoers cannot simply turn their backs upon this reality and spread misery and corruption without expecting to be held responsible for doing so. Our command is but one, which is carried out in the twinkling of any eye. Given that God controls all that exists, all he has to do is will a particular punishment and it is immediately carried out. There is no need for him to make preparations or remove barriers, for his will cannot be resisted. We have destroyed the likes of you in the past. Is there anyone who will take heed? This verse again addresses the Prophet's contemporaries. Look at the history of your spiritual forebears, those who established the very ideas and behaviors that you are still following. All of you are part of the same group. What happened to them? Will any of you listen to the warning that I am bringing or learn from these historical precedents? Everything they do is noted in their records. Everything they have ever done, every act they have ever undertaken, all of it is written in the guarded tablet. Nothing is hidden from God. Every small and great thing is recorded. Every act, without exception and regardless of importance, has been written and preserved in the fabric of existence. Now, having mentioned the deniers, the Quran, as it usually does, turns to the pious. The pious will live among gardens and rivers. In the hereafter, the pious, those who have the quality of taqwa, will be in a state of tranquility and ease. About these rivers of paradise, narrations from the Prophet say that we should not try to imagine that these rivers are like those in this world. On the contrary, this symbolizes the openness and breadth of the environment. So we might read this as indicating that their path to growth and development is infinite. Firmly established in the presence of a mighty king. Therefore, each person is promised what befits his or her own hopes, ideals, and intellectual maturity. Most people think of nothing beyond quenching their own worldly desires and wishes, and indeed want nothing more than seeing their own material whims fulfilled. 
but others who have a higher goal. They believe that being and seeing beloved in a state of happiness is their highest aspiration. For those who believe wholeheartedly in these promises, paradise is nothing other than meeting God and arriving in the place of truth and honesty. In short, if one's goal is to please Lord and Creator, what blessing could be greater than being close to Him and attaining His pleasure and satisfaction?'